Persecution often comes from people that are aggressors that resent another person's religion. In fact, you probably can't read the news in any given week without hearing something that at least touches on the issue of persecution. Now, it may not be labeled as such, but there is violence in the world, and many, many times at the very root of it, it is because of a hostile difference in people's beliefs about God and eternity and how we get there. Ultimately, Satan himself, we understand, is behind the persecution of God's children. You know, he, we were told he's a, he's a murderer from the beginning. There is a hatred, a vehemence by Lucifer for those whom the Father loves. He means to discourage them as Christians. He wants to sideline them. Take them out of the game, so to speak. He knows he can't interrupt the relationship. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God for that. But sadly to say, he can be and has been effective in causing many a Christian to sort of sit down in their walk and their race for life. We see this happening in the case of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Satan seems to have successfully worked at driving that prophet into an early retirement right after Mount Carmel. But then there's the sad news that Jezebel is not only unconvinced, as everybody else seems to be, but she's out to get him. And he is basically sitting down. I'm not, I'm not worthy of what my fathers before me have been. And, and not long after that, we see God essentially replacing him with Elisha. But not everybody's that way when they face difficulties and hardships. We're reminded of Job. In the case of Job, he had the loss of family, the loss of wealth and resources, the loss of personal health. Even really for a time period, it looks like he lost spousal support in being able to rightly handle what he was going through. It didn't seem like there was any encouragement on planet Earth, even from his friends. And yet we see him declaring of his God, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Did one go through it harder than the other? Well, we know that God graciously makes sure that we're not tempted above what we are personally able to bear. God's hand of sovereignty is always gauging what gets through to us. And it's really at his plan. We have here before us in Acts chapter 8 a text that describes the hardships of the early church. You know, as is often the case, it starts off with a lot of enthusiasm and exuberance and excitement. Things are going so well. And I'm sure there was immense joy, freedom of heart, lightness of spirit. And yet what happens in chapter 7 with Stephen being martyred and now with the, the religious leaders of Jerusalem and probably the population as a whole coming out aggressively against the Christians that are there in the city, we can see that this is behind the scenes, no doubt, the work of Satan. 
trying to discourage them, muffle them, sideline them, keep them from being effective. However, whether or not everybody in this story understands what's going on, we have the benefit of reading the story after the fact and seeing that through all this persecution, we can perceive of God's providence. Providence being that which means that God has a plan no matter what the circumstances are. That doesn't mean that God condones wickedness and sin, but we do understand that, as it says, that God can make even the wrath of men to praise Him. We understand that Judas was definitely condemned for his betrayal of Christ. And yet we also understand that God used that to bring about the plan of redemption in spite of Judas. Nothing can thwart or deter God's sovereign plan in your life as well. So what should we perceive about God's providence during times of persecution and hardship so that we will remain determined, much like Job was, rather than defeated like Elijah seemed to be. And I think there's two things we can see here in this text that I want us to develop. The first one is simply that your problems are as real as God's providence. God's never asking you to somehow imagine that you don't have problems or that you're supposed to look at your circumstances and to say, it's really no big deal whatsoever. But secondly, we also see that through this providence, that our profitability, your profitability, how God can use these difficulties in our life, that can increase, that can grow because of the fact that God providentially works. Now, how does this work? Well, let's, let's talk, go back to the first issue of how our problems are as real as God's providence. You see here, as Stephen was martyred, a movement begins to come against all Christians. It's ignited. As on fire as the Christians were for Christ, now those that are not Christians are ignited against Christianity. There is a scattering into the nearby regions that appears to be a reaction by the victims of this. We, we need to get out. It's a little too hot and intense right here in Jerusalem. So they begin to move away from the, the intensity of the hostilities. Most people would consider themselves underdogs in that kind of situations. They would see themselves as vulnerable to the religious bullies of the day. And in a, a quick glance over what we've read, you'd say, yeah, it certainly seems that way to me. And yes, they have problems, but that doesn't mean that God's providence isn't at work. What kind of problems did they have that really can transfer to what we're dealing with in our own personal lives? Number one, you may find that your suffering is very satisfying to the world. There's something very sinister about a person who takes great delight and joy in the suffering of other people. I hope that's not true of us. Sometimes we might secretly look at someone that is going through a difficulty in their life, and if, and if we were already at odds with them, we might be secretly 
tasting the joy and thinking, well, they're getting their comeuppance. You know, God, you know, get them good, so to speak. That's never, ever condoned in Scripture for us to have that spirit. You have only really to read the, the story of Obadiah, one chapter long, the, the message of which is the Edomites were so glad to see God chastening Israel, and they were saying, go get them, God, go get them. And then God turns around and says, I'm going to judge you for that spirit of revenge. We see here, these are religious people. These are people that are the seed of Abraham. These are people that were followers of God. And they seem to have a very sadistic nature here in this text. This kind of sadistic individual is one who delights in the pain and suffering of others. This kind of person has good days because you have bad days. They take comfort in other people's discomforts. When we are targets of this kind of person, you might wonder why they are so intent in bringing us down. Why do they hate us so much? Why don't they just go off and, and do what they're doing? And if, and if they don't like what we're doing, then just, you know, leave us alone, so to speak. But, but why come after us? Why is there such hostility? And we can even look and say, you know, there's other religions besides Christianity and the world and, and you don't see them attacking some of these religions like they do Christianity. And the answer is it goes back to the underlying person that's administrating much of this. We pull back the veil like the book of Job gives us. We know that again, Satan, that adversary, is behind the scene. We're in spiritual warfare, folks. Our enemy is not the flesh and blood person in front of us that is being snarky and scornful and hateful. No, it is their father, the devil, whom they may unwittingly be serving. In this story, a man has just been murdered, and the man largely responsible for it is feeling smug, we read. Saul was, in verse 1, consenting unto his death. He was approving of it. He was happy that it happened. He got a taste for it. He's looking for more of the same things to happen. This man Saul, we know later, becomes the great apostle Paul. What a transformation is going to have to take place in this man's life, correct? That you go in this kind of way. Stephen had been outspoken and influential for the Christian movement, and Saul could not stand for that. Now, Saul would later comment, about this point in his life. And he would say that of this time period, much of what he did, he did ignorantly in unbelief. His unbelief was not in Jehovah God. His unbelief was in Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Jehovah God. And so it might as well be unbelieving Jehovah God because God the Father sent forth His Son and made a master plan of salvation that only through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and life, could someone come to the Father. Paul, Saul, is not accepting of this. So there's a little bit of ignorance. He hasn't yet had the encounter that we're going to come to eventually. And so he is very determined. The orchestration of Stephen's execution was seen as a triumph for these people. 
We see it in the news. I was reading the, the news source called Breitbart, and it commented back in uh, March 18th of 2019 the following, quote, The recent death toll of Christians in Nigeria has reached 120 with this week's slaughter of more than 50 by Fulani Muslim militants in the Kudana state of Nigeria, which was originally reported by the Christian Post. 120 count just in that region, just by that group. And no doubt it's grown even since then. And that's what they have a count of. Why? Why are they targeting these people? Why is there such hatred? Simply because they are followers of Jesus Christ. They think, why not just go find people that don't have a religion and might, might want to sign up and be part of that? No, because it is the spirit of Satan himself who takes great delight in seeing the suffering of the souls of believers. Our problems are real, folks. We in our comfortable culture today of America don't sense it as much and as grievous it is in certain parts of the world where every day Christians are losing their lives, losing limbs, having themselves taken advantage of in unspeakable ways and they remain very true because of their faith in their God something else we see about our problems is that you will face damage that God will not always immediately repair this is often a question of Christians and we wonder because we begin to understand well one thing I know about my God is he's all-powerful he tells us there's nothing too hard for God. The arm of the Lord is not short that it cannot say. It is never an issue of impotence with God. It is never an issue of ability with God. So when God doesn't respond by removing us from our difficult situations, it must be for another reason. And the issue goes back to his providence. See, our problems are not eradicated just because God is a providential God. In fact, Jesus even warned his disciples and us in John 16, verse 20. He says, you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. This is going to happen. Expect it. Don't be surprised. One of the difficult things that we as Christians often face is funerals talking to Brother Koval, who was uh, helping with a, a service for a dear lady that's part of our uh, ministry up in North Carolina in the uh, assisted care facility there. Sister in the Lord that loved the Lord, she's gone on, and it's difficult. She won't be sitting there. She won't be enjoying the services and yet we know that there is hope beyond the grave for the believer. As Paul reminds us, we don't sorrow as those that have no hope. Unbelievers have no hope. They, they might hope, but they don't have a confident hope like we have. We're, we're told in Jesus Christ that if we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that our, our name is written in His book of life. What a joy that is. 
But that doesn't mean that when we go through a funeral that there isn't still pain, anxiety, grief with the momentary separation and physical life from us to that person. It hurts. We miss them. There's grief. God can and has reversed physical death. You read your Bibles, you know that Jesus rose from the dead, but there were others that rose from the dead at God's divine power. But we also know that that's not the norm, that he does that. It's natural and right that we long for more time with our loved ones. You know, it, it, it's proper. You know, it would be wrong if a, a service were to take place and there'd be a spirit of, well, I'm glad they're gone. That would be horrible. The fact that it hurts so much is an attesting that we had a wonderful relationship and fellowship with that person while they were here. There is a time of sorrow. Even the most spiritually minded of people, or as it talks about the grief that they are going through here in verse 2 over Stephen, devout men, spiritually mature, people that were grounded in the Word, you wouldn't expect them to be cheery and acting like it's a day like any other day. No, they have just lost the ongoing fellowship with their dear friend. They know what pain and suffering he went through as his life ended in that horrible, torturous martyrdom. So it is appropriate that we understand that it is a problem. It is painful. We have suffering. And that God will not always reverse, eradicate damages, and repair those things. You know, Stephen's perspective, and this is often as I'm doing a, a funeral service, memorial service, I often try to imagine if this person truly knew Christ as their Savior. What would their perspective be at this exact moment while I'm standing in front of an audience of people at the funeral service? And I think we all understand that that person is experiencing the things that were said that eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard the things that were prepared for them that love him. He's in the presence of Jesus, walking streets of gold, and, and the pain and the suffering of physical body is, is gone. How could we ever wish that person back from the glories of celestial living? We understand there is a selfishness. We want more time with them. But our good theology helps us to understand, as we look at Stephen, everything changed dramatically for him when he stepped foot on celestial ground in heaven. Paul stated himself later on, after his conversion with Christ, that to die was gain. Yes, for me in the immediate time, my goal, my ambition is to live for Christ. For me to live is Christ, but... To die is gain. To be with him, that's far better. I hope that we're never so caught up in this world that we don't look at our time when the Lord appoints it for us to be in heaven as an increase in rank, so to speak. You know, no matter how a person's demise occurs, we can understand that in the providence and sovereignty of God, it was appointed to them by God himself. Stephen dies at the end of chapter 7 
It was his appointed time by God Almighty. Thirdly, we also may realize that you may be harassed even when you are not being aggressive. This is sort of minding your own business. Now, we can almost imagine people, the Jews, coming out against the Christians if they were standing in Solomon's porch like Peter was and, and they were passing out tracts and stopping people and, and telling them, listen, you need to get saved. But according to verse 3, they're going house to house to people's abodes, their domiciles, knocking on the doors, interrogating them, trying to find out who is a Christian, what do you know about your neighbor next door? Are they a follower of Jesus Christ? Paul, I can imagine, had, Saul had methodically mapped out the city and was checking off the homes is really what we're led to believe here. He was hunting down the Christians. He systematically and was tenaciously going through the community to root them out. And he wasn't going to be satisfied until he had purged them. When he had found them, he arrested them. And from there, it was not a pretty sight. Perhaps you found yourself in the same situation. I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice lady, you might say. You know, why are they so agitated with me? Why do they hate us so much? Sometimes we read news stories, again, in other parts of the world where the hostility is much more glaring. And there are Christian missionaries who go in and they bring food and they bring medical clinics. They help them dig wells. And then you see the hostility of some of those same people that are benefiting right back onto those people who are doing so, giving the cup of water in the name of Jesus Christ. We need to recognize it is a problem, but it's not outside of God's providence. And then fourthly, you may be separated from those who give you support. There is this dispersion. This event right here that we're reading about broke up the enormous collection of Christians in Jerusalem. Even accounting for some of the converts that were present that we read about in Acts 2 and 3 and so forth like that, Many of those were out-of-town guests that had come for the celebrating of the festival of Pentecost. But aside from that, many commentators believe there were probably at least a couple of thousand residents in Jerusalem that were Christians, if not more, that made up the local church, which is why they needed to bring in the deacons in Acts chapter 6, because there was such a, a need of the body of people that were there. You know, there's... There's great comfort in having a, a large gathering of Christians. You create sort of this compound almost, if you would, that brings security and safety and, and comfort. Those that you know are like-minded. There is also a danger of that. In the years that I've been pastoring, I've talked with pastors in other communities and it's inter interesting, in some communities where there is a good, solid Bible college, for instance, and it's been there for a long time, 
Often the graduates have had to work jobs in the community, and they get married, and, you know, they just stay there. And that's not always wrong. That's not always wrong. But sometimes you, you find out there's this huge comfort zone, if you would. And you have to wonder, are, are maybe some people just staying there because it's so much more pleasant? And, and are some of them ignoring, perhaps, God's call to, to go out into areas where people need to hear the gospel and there's a dearth of churches and there are s- small churches led by a struggling pastor who would love for someone to come and just play the piano for them. The lead singing, teach a Sunday school class. You go out west, in the western United States, where population is sparse. That's the norm. It's the norm that there's little churches that are struggling. Pastors bivocational. They would love for a couple people to come out, do their same kind of employment in those communities. But sometimes it's just hard to push ourselves out of our comfort zone. And so God sometimes in His providence helps us out. And that's what's happening here. And it's interesting that that Luke, as he is led by the Holy Spirit to write this, he mentions that they go out into the regions of Judea and Samaria. Wow, I've heard that phrase somewhere else before. Judea and Samaria. Oh, I remember where. That was back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 when Jesus was about to leave and commissioning his disciples that they were supposed to give the gospel to those in Jerusalem but not stop there, also into Judea and Samaria and ultimately where? Uttermost part of the earth. And this appears to me to be God's providentially nudging them out of the nest. It's time for some of you to get out there. And it's just true that sometimes God has to make things uncomfortable for us where we are so we'll get to the place where He intends for us to be. They're problems, but they're not outside of God's providence. But then secondly, we see our profitability can increase through God's providence. It says that they went everywhere preaching the word. What a blessing. They didn't just go. They didn't just go with spite, but they were true Christians. They loved the Lord. And so as they went, they just kept doing what they were already doing, sharing the gospel. This scattering provided a natural opportunity for the spread of the gospel. Imagine, especially in Bible days, how they farmers worked. They had what was called a sower. You can picture that bag that was draped across him. He would dig his head da- hand down into that, that surplus of seed. He would take it and then he would scatter it. Some of you have seen a picture like that. And you say, that's great. That's what a sower is supposed to do. But can you imagine stopping and watching the sower for about 15 minutes and he stands and he breaches in a bag and he scatters like this. And then he still standing in the same place, does the same thing, and scatters the seed. And you're waiting, and you're watching, and he reaches in his bag without moving his feet and scatters the seed. And for 10 and 15 minutes, he just keeps doing that. And you'd be prone to holler out at him, man, you need to keep moving. There's more of the field that needs to be sown. Do we get it? 
Do we understand? Jesus is responsible for the harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. But he told us to pray that he would send forth laborers out into the harvest. Into has built into it the idea of movement. Not that you just stand firmly planted, but going out. And then there's a reaping that takes place. But you have to move through the harvest in order to gain that reaping. You can't stay firmly planted. You see, we have a broader scope because of God's providence. And our spiritual influence is better. Secondly, your brokenness and burden may strip away your bias that you have. I'm not biased, you say. Well, you know, if we really did some honest introspection, we'd probably realize we all have some prejudice and bias about us. It's almost impossible with our fleshly bent not to. But in verse 5, we read about one particular man, Philip, also a deacon that had been chosen and appointed. And he is going down. And here's an interesting place. He's going down to the city of, or a city of what? Samaria. Say Samaria. I remember hearing about that place. It was mentioned up above, but yes. Back in the book of John, Jesus was with his disciples. And they were making a journey. And it says that Jesus spoke and said, I must needs go through Samaria. I remember that. And he met this woman that we call the woman at the well. And I remember how shocked she was when he spoke to her, when Jesus, being a Jewish man, spoke to her, being a Samaritan, because she knew the Jews despised Samaritans as half-breeds. There was a built-in bias by God's people, not because God condoned it, but it was a systemic, widespread problem in Judaism. We remember the story of the Good Samaritan. Those that were Jewish wouldn't help the man that was fall, play, uh, had fallen prey victim to the, the robbers, but the one man that did help, surprisingly enough, was this Samaritan. Jesus was quick to point out the bias that we have. Philip, I can't believe, wasn't impacted as he grew up as a Jewish boy with that same sentiment. But somehow there is a working in his life. There is a brokenness when he realizes, but who am I apart from Jesus Christ? What is my identity apart from him accepting me? And became burdened for these people. You know, when... God makes things difficult and hard for us. Sometimes as we come to the end of ourselves, we have a little bit more tenderness to other people. We stop looking at certain individuals as almost unsavable, unredeemable. There's no one that God doesn't have the power to reach out and save. The culture had gotten its hooks into them but we see the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit really changing things. There is something about running for your life that takes you down a peg or two. It was helpful, and it worked in Philip's life. 
no doubt other people that moved into the same region of Samaria that were told back in verse 1 happened. And then thirdly, notice that your divine usefulness may increase when paired with more receptive individuals. We all want to be useful. None of us imagine tomorrow I want to go out and I want to spend a couple hours witnessing to lost people, and I'm really hoping that nobody gives me the time of day. Nobody thinks that way. We hope that there will be at least some politeness and some interest as we share what Jesus has done in our life. We want to be useful. We want to be compassionate, making a difference. But in order for that to happen... You have to have receptive hearers. As Jesus would often say in his own parables, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear, implied. You've got to be receptive if this is going to help you. Well, God in his providence sometimes puts us in a different vicinity with receptive people. Not everyone had an accepting attitude who witnessed the miracles and signs produced by the Holy Spirit that Philip is doing here. When we read back in a place like Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus healed many people, the people looked at those same types of miracles that Philip is doing here, but that group of people said, hmm, I know what he's doing. He's using the power of Beelzebub. He, he is powered by Satan in what he's doing. They didn't say, wow, he must be of God. They didn't have a receptive spirit. The people to whom Philip went, did have a receptiveness for the truth. God's providence, no doubt, had been at work in their heart. We're not told individually what had happened, but something had softened the soil of their hearts to receive the truth of God's Word. They witnessed the miracles and healings of Philip and concluded that something good and authentic was behind this man rather than satanic. They better listen to his words. They gave heed unto those things. Sound logic. Now what ought we to pray for? For God to give us divine appointments, I would say. Divine appointments where we can be a channel of blessing to someone. We're encouraged to pray for the sending of those laborers into the harvest. But we're also to be a laborer. And so how about praying, Lord, Send me as a laborer into the harvest. Give me those divine appointments in whose life you're already working so that I can see yet another child of God entered into your kingdom. God alone knows where those fields are. And God alone is able to put them in the middle of your daily itinerary. But that's what God's providence is all about. There have been those who had a flight delay as they were traveling. And during that time, got over the frustrations of their schedule being messed up and found themselves having a conversation with another individual who ended up receiving the gospel because of their witness. And you walk away and say, shame on me for being so flustered over my schedule being imposed upon God was giving me a divine appointment. His providence gave me the opportunity to be a laborer in his field. A man I remember hearing tell a story 
had car trouble. And again, very easy to get frustrated, stand there and fume and kick the tires of that worthless piece of junk that let you down. Then the tow truck driver arrived, and as he was working, the Spirit of God said, speak to that man. And he began to witness to him, and God opened the heart of that tow truck driver to receive Jesus Christ as his Savior. Divine appointment. God may have given you that flat tire. It's his providence. Another story of a woman who lost the use of her kidneys. Tragic. And yet she found herself several times a week sitting in dialysis, most of the time next to the same man in the adjacent chair. And as it would ordinarily happen, conversations struck up and things turned to the Lord. And this man receives Christ as a Savior. Tragic problems? Yes. But God's providence? Praise Him. You know, there is typically a time delay between the occurrence of our afflictions when we're going through it, we're in the midst of it, when we're prone to complain, and when the significance of this finally occurring to us. And all those stories that I, I gave to you, I don't think any of those people, as I remember telling those stories back to me, said, you know, at the moment that the problem occurred, I remember thinking, praise God, He's going to use me in this divine appointment somehow. No, they were all flustered, all agitated. But on the back side of things, they could see with 2020 vision what God was doing. But let's learn from that, right? Let's realize God does that. And so as we face these frustrations, let's curb our exasperations and our complaints. And let's have a spirit of faith that says, Lord, what are you leading me into? What does your providence have in store for me? No doubt this is intentional by you. I came across a wonderful quote by C.H. Spurgeon that I would like to close with. He said, Providence, and this is in his book called God's Providence, Providence is wonderfully intricate. Ah, you want always to see through Providence, do you not? Well, you never will, I assure you. You have not eyes good enough. You want to see what good that affliction was to you. You must believe it. You want to see how it can bring good to the soul. You may be enabled in a little time, but you cannot see it now. You must believe it. Honor God by trusting Him. Friends, God's providence is real. It's real in your life. Embrace it. Worship your God and enjoy being a tool in his hand. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the reminder to us that while we look at a story filled with hardship and tragedy, to see that in the circumference of all this, is your hand, your guidance, your intentionality. And so, Father, may we move forward in our lives. We don't know what problems, what, what aggressors we're going to face, what challenges, what hardships, 
But Lord, if we can right now say, Lord, by your grace, I want to respond in faith and trust you. Not after I see how it was all going to work out, but at the beginning, at the outset. Lord, that's not our nature. We need your help. But Lord, help us to have willing spirits, desirous spirits, to be agents of providence in your almighty hand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.